Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast series on impact, talking with entrepreneurs and organizational leaders who contribute to building a more cooperative and positive future. I'm Ursula York, the host of this series. I'm a mentor to business people who want to have a positive effect on the world around them, building strong businesses by creating value for their clients, team members, and the larger world. I am so passionate about sharing with you the stories of entrepreneurs and leaders who have impact, their inspiring and energizing role models. I hope you use what you learn here to be inspired about what you can do in your business and beyond. For ongoing inspiration and support to get clear on your impact and put it into action, enter your name and email at workalchemy.com. Today's guest in this podcast series on impact is Malika Dutt. Malika is a leading innovator in human rights, multimedia, and culture change. She combines her creative advocacy for social justice with a spiritual healing practice that connects planet, people, and purpose. Malika is founder, president, and CEO of the global human rights organization Breakthrough, whose mission is to build a world in which violence against women and girls is unacceptable and all beings can thrive. Her achievements include co-founding Saki for South Asian Women, initiating the Ford Foundation's work on police reform in India, and acting as Associate Director of the Center for Women's Global Leadership at Rutgers University, which led the global movement that recognizes women's rights as human rights. In 2012, Malika received an honorary doctorate from Mount Holyoke University in recognition of her pioneering accomplishments. So welcome to the podcast, Malika. I'm so delighted to have you here. Thank you, Ursula. I'm looking forward to this conversation. So to tell tell me a little bit about how your work has evolved, because you're involved at a, really a global level with issues that affect all of us in the day-to-day, which is such exciting and impactful work. How did how did that come to evolve? I know you started out with a law degree and and uh, also did work in international affairs, but could you tell us a little bit about how you came to do what you're doing now? I began to really think about impact uh, in a very different way after I was involved in the global UN World Conferences. Uh, There was a conference on human rights in Vienna, another conference on population and development in Cairo. And then we went to Beijing for the big women's conference in 95. And, you know, one of the questions that I was really beginning to ask myself was, what was the relationship between big shifts in the policy arena and the actual transformations that needed to happen in people's lives on a daily lived way? So I found myself working at the Ford Foundation in India um, as the human rights program officer following Beijing. And there was something about being back in the country of my birth, but now as an adult, And having had the experience of being in the United States, as well as in this global arena, that really got me to start asking how we engaged with people in a much more sort of interpersonal way. How did we take ideas of justice? How did we take ideas of equality? How did we take ideas of human dignity, but find ways to create a different kind of engagement around that so that we took the public policy and made it a lived reality. 
that led me to an exploration of really examining how popular culture and different forms of cultural expression could assist us in doing that. And so I took the issue of violence against women, which is a global pandemic, um, and began to experiment with music, with a music video, a music album, and an incredible partnership with creative people in advertising, lyricists, music directors, artists, in, in really uh, co-creating this first album and music video that I produced, which was called Manke Manjire. Now, Manke Manjire means rhythm of the mind. And the idea behind the album and the music video was to take what is happening with women and bring it into kind of a public dialogue place to engage with lots of people around issues of violence, but from the point of view of women. And that was uh, one of those sort of incredible experiments that was successful. The album went through the charts, the music video won multiple awards, and the story of a woman who left an abusive marriage and became a truck driver became almost like this iconic story in India that started engaging people in a conversation around violence against women in a very different way than I had experienced in my prior roles in the arenas of public policy, uh, individual legal representation, workshops. And that led to the creation of Breakthrough, which is the organization that I've been running for the last 17 years, where how we use culture change to transform the norms that lead to violence um, has been the mission and a very exciting journey. Well, you've certainly... I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, that was it. <laughs> well, you've certainly taken what I think sometimes this, this work that you're doing is perceived as, as very, uh, I mean, while certainly, uh, important, it's sometimes perceived as very dry and, and kind of dealt with on, uh, a level that is removed from day-to-day -day life and by involving popular culture in a, in such a successful way you've really brought it to the fore in in a unique way that obviously had had an effect on people yes it was um quite astonishing for me also to see how that use of culture opened channels of communication. You know, I have um, been a public speaker, sort of done workshops, engaged with legal issues, but there was something about music and then there was something about watching a story unfold on television that really captured people's imagination. Of course, it was also really important to make sure that we created a narrative arc and a product that was beautiful, that was engaging, um, that didn't preach at people. And so what ended up happening was because we were working together collaboratively and there were men involved in the creation of this. So there was a guy who wrote the lyrics, there was a guy who did the music, there was a guy who directed this music video it also led to a dialogue and a conversation about the engagement of men in addressing violence against women. That was something that I had not uh, really 
engaged with or understood before. And certainly for the larger public to be looking at these young men who at the time were really uh, sort of beginning their careers in the entertainment industry was an eye opener. And it, it, it allowed many different kinds of conversations to emerge. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's since it's often men directing violence towards women until men become involved in the conversation, it's really just a sharing of experience rather than a, I mean, there's never going to be a resolution until men become involved in the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, how do you, how did you, in, in the development of your organization breakthrough, how, how did you bring your values to bear in that? And, and the reason that I ask that is it's my belief that the impact that you have, the positive contribution you make is very much informed by what you hold as important. And so I think that values come into play, whether we incorporate them consciously or unconsciously. So just wondered your, what your thoughts are and, and how your values came into play in, in developing this organization. Um, that's, a, that's a great question. And it's always wonderful to do these kinds of hindsight reviews, right? Because at the time, uh, I'm not sure that that was something that I was acting on very consciously. I think that when one is in a startup phase, you know, you're kind of hustling, you know, you're, you're experimenting, you're trying to pull stuff together. A lot of times it's just you. And for a big chunk of the initial years of breakthrough, it was just me. So it wasn't like I was bringing values to an organization. I was trying to create something right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, trying to raise the resources and experiment with different forms of popular culture and popular expression. So when I kind of think back, there are a couple of things that were really important to me. One was that I really wanted to make sure that we listened to people that we wanted to engage with. So this idea of uh, creating even a pop culture piece really necessitated a deep listening to where people were were at, where people were engaged, how one needed to create a dialogue, not a unidirectional conversation. I think many of us who do social justice work find ourselves in this place of, you know, we are warriors, we're carrying the torch, and we know the way, right? Right. And there's, there's a whole... A deep listening requirement, I think, that really needs to be built into every endeavor that allows an engagement to happen. And it also means that when you are listening, whatever your perspectives are, you have to be willing to be influenced by the perspectives of the people or the person that you're listening to. Like it can't just be that you're listening with an agenda, Um, Of course, yes, you have an agenda. Of course, there's a mission that you're trying to move. But listening really means a relational way of sort of showing up. And I think that was something that became a really integral part of how Breakthrough did its work. So let me give you an example. We were doing a lot of work around the issue of women and HIV AIDS in in India. And um, a lot of the conversation around women was focused on sex workers and women in prostitution being uh, both the carriers and the victims of HIV, 
And so when we actually started to listen to women around this issue, what we discovered was that the largest number of women with HIV AIDS were actually married women um, who were not sex workers and that the framework around this issue was completely ignoring what was happening to them. So women were actually getting infected by their husbands and then when their husbands died, being thrown out of their homes or, you know, getting ill themselves and ending up being homeless or losing their kids. And like there was a whole set of issues that we then started to address because we really were listening rather than just coming in sort of with the dominant narrative around the theme. And then as we continued to listen, the women that we were working with started to say to us, look, um, it's great that, you know, you're kind of focused on uplifting all of these issues and giving us voice. But if you don't work with the men and if you don't bring them into the conversation, nothing is going to change. And that then led us to creating this campaign called Ring the Bell, which in Hindi is Bell Bajau, which was calling on men to stand up against domestic violence that ended up being a complete game changer. It ended up being sort of one of those campaigns that just went viral, had massive reach, got adapted in multiple languages into multiple countries, um, and really just became a global campaign organically. And I really believe that our ability to sort of tap into something that was a heart space for men around this issue happened because we were listening. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think the point you made about willingness to be influenced is so crucially important because you're right that the, the, the mere listening, even though as important as that is, if you're not willing to have your mind changed, then there's not going to be change effected through that process. And this is a great example, this Ring the Bell campaign, um, because my my perception, at least, of of India is that it's that um, that women don't necessarily have a say in the domestic arena historically, at least. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, this campaign sounds like it reflected a really powerful shift in that. Actually, you know, Ursula, the campaign reflected a shift in how we were asking men to show up. Mm. And so much of the accountability around ending violence against women has been placed on women's shoulders. And so when we were listening to the women that we were working with, what they were saying was that if you don't incorporate men into becoming accountable and showing up beyond just being perpetrators, right? Right. Then we're not going to be able to shift this. Mm -hmm. So the campaign was actually more about a shift from simply saying, yo guy, you're a perpetrator, listen up, shape up, to saying you as a man can be part of the solution. You can show up and say, this is not okay. And that I think was the more important shift. And the reason I think that it ended up having such global resonance, including in the United States, was that men had not really been invited into the movement um, against violence against women as partners in, in a meaningful way. And even when they were invited in, it was never really clear to anybody what it was that they were being asked to do. 
So in the narrative that the advertising agency Ogilvy that worked with us on this campaign, in the narrative that we developed, you know, you hear violence next door, instead of continuing to read your paper, you get up and you go and ring the bell and you interrupt the violence and you interrupt the violence with an excuse, I need milk. My dog ran into your apartment. Do you have electricity? You know, whatever it is. Um, and in that exchange between the guy who's opened the door, who's been beating his partner, and the guy who's ringing the bell and interrupting the violence, you're creating a different peer conversation and a different peer accountability where one guy is saying to the other guy, even if he's not explicitly using those words, saying, hey, dude, this is not okay. This is just not okay. And now, interestingly enough, when it came to the United States and the adaptation of the campaign here, what we heard from many people in this country was, you know, because of the gun culture in the United States, I don't know that we can do a campaign where the guy goes down the corridor or goes to the house next door and rings the bell. Sure. Because, you know, they could get shot. And so we had this really interesting conversation with prosecutors and DAs and lawyers and um, domestic violence advocates in the Queens court system, you know, to really kind of look at how do we create campaigns like this in the United States where we're still inviting men in to act as interrupters, to act as accountable people to stop violence while at the same time being cognizant of the reality of the gun culture that adds an, that adds a different dimension of violence um, and possible death to the equation than in India where, you know, people don't usually have guns in their houses. So it's that, that was a really interesting journey for us to kind of understand how you could have a universal theme and then be really mindful of the particular cultural and country contexts within what, which that needed to play out. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, it's the evolution of the initial idea and how does that play out in other cultures and uh, depending on what's happening locally. Yeah. Is there, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, this work that you're involved with. It's, it's obviously deeply, it can be deeply emotional. It can be very confrontational how how do you feel that your role in this has has developed over time and and what do you feel is the best use of your time and energy now in the place that you're you're at i know you you're taking uh, a bit of a step back from breakthrough how has that developed within yourself and and how do you take care of yourself in that in that topic that very volatile topic that you're involved with that's a great question, and I think it's one that many of us who do different kinds of human rights work uh, need to really spend more time in addressing. Um, you know, I am exhausted. <laughs> I will just be completely direct and blunt about that. I mean, I have been working at Breakthrough for you know more than 16 years, and I've been working in this field of human rights for almost 35 years. And I feel that there is a way in which uh, we need to incorporate much more self-care into how we do our work 
than we might have uh, been in this space in general. First of all, many of us have experienced direct trauma. You know, many, many, many women. If you're, if you're, if you say a statistic like one in three women are going to have experienced violence in their lifetime, chances are that you know most of us are included in that statistic, right? Mm -hmm. um, so first of all, we're dealing with personal trauma. Then we're dealing with all of the trauma of the women or men that we might be engaging with directly in the work, you know, and people who've been beaten, maimed, mutilated, killed. Uh, and, you know, certainly one of the things that I've discovered is that physical violence and emotional violence and sexual violence and economic violence and racist violence, like all take their toll. You know, it doesn't have yes. to be you are beaten to an inch of your life in order for the trauma to be a part of your system. Sure. And the, and the ways in which power and control and violence are used um, to, to keep control in the family, in, on streets, in countries, in the workplace, is actually something that I think affects all of us. So, so we have all of these levels of at the personal level, then at the interpersonal level, and then at the institutional level. I mean, God knows, you know, every day we wake up to, you know, yes, a truck just plowed into the Christmas market in Berlin. A bomb just went off in Afghanistan and killed 150 people. Uh, you know, we're looking at pictures of Aleppo, which has been completely destroyed in Syria as Assad tries to reassert power. We watch, you know, what's happening to animals around the world. And now with the increased use of social media, the levels of violence in the world are also present in our lives. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that the, the kind of ways in which trauma affects all of us, whether we're working on these issues or not is something that needs to become a much, much bigger public conversation. I think you raise a really important point in that we're not unaffected. I mean, just because someone may be sitting there and watching it on a computer screen or their phone or the TV, it doesn't mean we're unaffected by it. And I think that that's a really important thing to consider. And, and what does that mean for those of us who want to be doing work that is contributing in some way, we often feel so passionate about it and we're highly engaged by it. It can be very easy to then um, have our own self-care fall away. Are, are there particular things that you do personally that you find helpful? You're you're taking a bit of a, a break um, and, and hopefully resting. Um, are there things that you actively do that, that uh, you find helpful? I, I always think it's good to share these things so we can help each other to develop uh, our own ways of, of self-care. I mean, there are two things that I actively do as a daily practice that I'll share. One is that I have a daily meditation practice. I study with a Zazen teacher, mm -hmm. Zazen is a form of Buddhist meditation, of Zen meditation. Um, and I think any form of meditation is just amazing. It's something that I actually only started to do in March of this year. So it's a relatively new practice for me. And it's been oh. really a game changer because there's something about taking that moment to just sit and focus on your breath that allows uh, I think at least it allows me to kind of find myself 
find a way home to myself, you know, to just really be in the presence of my living, breathing body. And we take that living, breathing body so much for granted. I mean, we are such miracles in this world. Our bodies are these complex organisms with all these different parts that work together and cooperate together and come together to give us our voice and our journey and our presence on this planet. And breath is the only thing that sort of differentiates us from being alive and from being dead. And I just feel like being in a place where one just sits with oneself and one's breath brings us back to a reminder of ourselves and really the mystery and magic of who we are that I think is just, uh, it's, it's a wonderful kind of plug in to a reset, you know, and it allows, it has certainly allowed me to develop a pause. So if I'm in the world and dealing with something that's coming at me, instead of just quickly going into reactive mode, I have the ability to take that breath before I respond. And taking that breath allows me to respond from a place of love or compassion or pain or anger or whatever it is that I'm getting triggered to do. But that pause makes it a little bit more mindful than just lashing out, right? So Mm -hmm. either looking at the carnage in Aleppo and getting seriously traumatized or shut down because a lot of times I think when you're working a lot with violence and trauma, you just learn how to numb yourself because it's just too much. And numbing also has its consequences because then you tend to need more and more and more extreme forms of violence to react to something. And I think that's part of what we're dealing with in the world today is that we've allowed so much to happen that the benchmarks just keep getting pushed further and further and further out, right? So Mm -hmm. a meditation practice, I think, just allows us to step into a place of being with ourselves that very little in our culture right now gives us an opportunity to do. The other thing that I do that has been really wonderful for me is that there's a book called The Artist's Way. Mm -hmm. Julia Cameron. That's right, Julia Cameron's book. And when I was working at the Ford Foundation in India, you know, I kept muttering and moaning about wanting to write and having a writing block. And so a friend of mine gave me The Artist's Way and said, here, Uh, why don't you try this? And so I did. And that's actually how I ended up producing the music album and the music video is sort of (laughs) opening up these channels that I didn't even know existed inside me, you know, because I was kind of a public policy lawyer type person. And here I was producing a music album and a music video and running around in the entertainment industry. So the artist's way opened up all of that. But one of the practices in the artist's way is something called the morning pages. And it's this practice of waking up in the morning and putting pen to paper and just allowing yourself to write three pages of whatever it is that's coming through. And I think that, that has, that's been a practice that I have now been engaged in for a very long time. And I just love it because it's, you know, it's that place where all the rubbish that's inside you, all of the joy that's inside you. I mean, everything from, I can't believe she said that to me yesterday <laughs> and I really want to fire her ass and, you know, this <laughs> off to, oh my God, I just had the most incredible experience that was so divine. I mean, and there's no, 
there's no sort of sensor, right, that just allows whatever it is that needs to come through to come through and, and getting it out of your system and onto paper again then allows a spaciousness and a distance. And so those are the two practices that I do have. Mm -hmm. And you know, of course one's own healing one one's own healing, one's own self work around all of the ways in which trauma may have impacted us at a personal level is something that I really strongly encourage people to pay attention to. Yeah, I agree. That is so important. And you've, you've really, um, I, I love how the artist's way opened you up to this, this whole creative realm that, uh, you know, you kind of, you describe yourself as going from this public policy lawyer to creator of mu music videos, or at least having a hand in that. So, um, it just goes to show that this, this opening up of creativity can be so powerful and, and valuable. Absolutely. And I really firmly believe that that creativity exists in each and every one of us. And, you know, it's just allowing, it's, it's sort of connecting with that life force within us that wants expression, that we have created so many structures to suppress. Um, and, you know, finding ways to kind of reconnect with the life force as opposed to the death force, which is kind of how I feel like we've constructed our societies can be just such an exciting um, place to be. One of the things that I found myself doing last year when I went on sabbatical was uh, studying energy medicine in South America. And by energy medicine, I mean sort of the indigenous traditions, the shamanic traditions, uh, you know, we're most familiar with them in North America through the Native American traditions um, that have existed, which really call for a deep relationship between people, humans, and the earth, and all forms of life. And so that's what I found myself doing, again, to my utter surprise, um, last summer. And I think what that did for me was really shift my relationship with other inhabitants of this planet besides humans. I mean, I've always been an animal rights person. You know, I am vegetarian. But there was a way in which uh, stepping into the indigenous way of looking at the world and really understanding interconnectedness and really understanding how, you know, the tree that I have this deep relationship with in Central Park and I are of this earth and, you know, come from that same miracle of, life um, and the trees in the park are all kind of part of my larger community and all of the beings that kind of hang out on the trees or on the ground or in the sky um, or in the water that there's a there's a way in which I'm not just interconnected with other human beings but that everything in this world is interconnected and there's this beautiful dance that we could all be doing because nature has given us such magnificence and we've again become so disconnected from that and again you know we've built all of these silos and these systems and these structures that are all about separating us from one another and from this beautiful incredible planet that we inhabit so that's been another huge shift for me and that's something that I'm really 
um, exploring and stepping into and being curious about as sort of the next stage of my own evolution that is leading me uh, into a different kind of journey. Do you see that evolving already? Is Are there ways that that's coming into play in the work that you're doing? Or is it is it currently at a kind of self-development stage that you will, of course, and eventually incorporate into what you're, you'll be doing? It's, it's already manifesting in different kinds of ways. It doesn't have the same kind of clarity um, as I am going to go produce a music album, right? It's more curious and exploratory. So, for example, for the last four years, I've been co-teaching a course at Omega, which is this beautiful, wonderful place in upstate New York that is all about exploring your spiritual path and different healing modalities. So I co-teach a Women's Leadership Institute, and I and I share that uh, with, you know, Leslie, who is this incredible movement person who teaches something called, called Afroflow Yoga, and Sharon Salzberg, who is one of the leading loving-kindness meditation teachers in the country, and Carla, who is at Omega, who brings just this incredible combination of sort of understanding policy and spirituality and her place at Omega to the mix. And so we co-created this um, course that I've been teaching for the last four years, which is a place that I've gotten to bring my understanding of human rights and really start to uh, mix it with this more interconnectedness way of looking at the world and exploring how then we kind of show up as leaders on the planet it shows up in how I lead the organization, you know, the day after the election um, in the United States, uh, my colleagues at work were just so incredibly traumatized and really in a place of pain. And we were supposed to be doing these workshops and all of these other things. And it was just really clear that no one had the capacity to do that. So what I did was lead us for an hour in loving kindness meditation and really just created a container for us to grieve, to show up with the fear, the pain, the grief, uh, the questioning around what this election and this new president would mean for the United States, for us as individuals, you know, people around the table were Jewish, were gay, were immigrants, were women, um, had felt personally attacked, uh, you know, at various times during the presidential campaign. So, you know, it was a personal fear as well as sort of a collective angst. And that's kind of how, you know, I held space for that. I also have an individual healing practice where I work with individuals um, to really help them move through whatever is getting in the way of them connecting with their life force and really showing up in their fullest potential that's much more of a working through word of mouth and with friends kind of a practice because, you know, I've been running this organization and um, it's been something that I've kind of been stepping into as well. So, yeah, in different kinds of ways. Well, in this work that you're doing, it's been so wide ranging. And uh, are, is, there, is there one piece of advice or an insight that you would offer to a business owner or a leader who is asking themselves, how can I positively affect things where I am? And 
and in my community and the larger world? How can I have impact? What would you offer to them? You know, I've been thinking a lot about that even as we kind of uh, look at everything that's happening around the world and, you know, everyone is going to the Women's March in, in D.C. in January and there's all of this um, activism and organizing that's happening. The thing that I have really come to believe, and I this is what I would love to share with my co-innovators and co-entrepreneurs and co-leaders who are listening into this conversation, really being in integrity with oneself is the most important way in which we can show up on this planet right now. And by that, I mean this. What are your values and how do you live them? And how do you live them in your family? How do you live them for yourself? How do you live them in your work? How do you live them in your workplace? So, you know, I ask myself questions like, what are the policies that we have for breakthrough and how do we follow them? How do we address issues of sexual harassment within the workplace? Forget about changing gender norms with fraternities on college campuses because so much of our work in the U.S. is about really challenging gender-based violence externally. But how do we show up with each other, right? What is the place of influence and power that you have as an individual? Some of us may have an organization that has thousands of employees. Some of us may just be an individual working as a coach. Some of us may have decided to take a break from the external world and be more focused on doing internal work. Some of us may be policymakers. Some of us may be lawyers. Some of us may be artists. You know, I mean, we each one of us acts and lives in a particular place of power and influence within our domain. So my question around how we step into a place of integrity is really to ask, how do we use our privilege? How do we use our privilege of being the boss or being the parent or being the coach or being the lawyer or being the American or being the man or being the whatever it is that is is enabling you to live in this world with privilege. How are we in relationship to our privilege right now? And how might we use that to be in integrity with the values that we espouse? And maybe what is the one shift that we might need to make? So, you know, I've been thinking a lot about my relationship to plastic. I mean, I know this sounds really mundane, <laughs> but as I've started to get into a much more place of understanding the interconnectedness and my footprint and my place of privilege, I live in the United States. I live in New York City. Um, you know, I have a fair amount of privilege. I'm a consumer. And what is it that I do with plastic on a daily basis? And what might I need to shift? around that, you know, is that a commitment to never buying any more plastic bottles of water? Is that really uh, getting on some kind of a campaign or I getting Starbucks to start using compostable mm. cups? Right. Uh, is it both of those things? I mean, what is, you know, I, I, 
and I have no idea why plastic is a thing that I'm currently obsessed with, but that's my thing. Well, and, and whatever it is, it's, it's what is the thing that you would like to focus on. And um, I think that's a great way of helping people to think about what can they do. And this is really what I'm seeing right now is, including in myself, is this amazing call to action, which you've just articulated so well, of what can you do? What can you do in your world that feels important to you? And if what feels important to you is to take a step back and retreat and do your own work internally to heal whatever it is that you need to work on so you can show up with more integrity, then I also encourage you to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for adding that as well. And and thank you, Malika, for sharing what you've shared today. I know that your journey with all of this has gone from, as you said, public policy lawyer, then you became, uh, through the course of your work in India, uh, this music producer, very creative um, way of addressing the issue of violence against women. And, and you've really now bringing uh, spirituality into the work that you're doing on a day-to-day basis. So thank you for sharing all of that with us today. Thank you so much, Ursula. I hope uh, that this conversation is helpful to folks and I send lots of love and blessings and every good wish for everyone's well-being in these times. Well, thank you. And, and if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Is it through your website or another? Yeah, website? my website, it's uh, malikadats.com. And my email is malikadatta.gmail.com. So I'd love to hear from folks. Great. Thank you. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you so much, Ursula, for inviting me to be a part of this alchemy. (laughs) It's my pleasure. So join us for more podcasts on impact. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast channel on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll be notified as soon as new podcasts are available. Thank you to everyone listening for being here. Until next time, to keep that positive flow of energy going in your business so you can have your own impact, Join our community of entrepreneurs like you by entering your name and email at workalchemy.com.